NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you. Guided by plant professionals, dig into botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Online learning your way. Register at nybg.org. Calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. Last Saturday on CNN, in talking about the case of the organic chemistry professor, I quoted my next guest, so it'll be nice to have her here and let her fully develop her reaction to this story. Stephanie Saul from the New York Times broke it on a national level. Here's the lead of her piece. In the field of organic chemistry, Maitland Jones Jr. has a storied reputation. He taught the subject for decades, first at Princeton, then at NYU, and wrote an influential textbook. He received awards for his teaching, as well as recognition as one of NYU's coolest professors. But last spring, as the campus emerged from pandemic restrictions, 82 of his 350 students signed a petition against him. Students said the high-stakes course, notorious for ending many a dream of medical school, was too hard, blaming Dr. Jones for their poor test scores. The professor defended his standards, but just before the start of the fall semester, university deans terminated Dr. Jones' contract. Last Saturday, in the New York Times, half a page of the paper, if not more, under the headline, A Professor's Firing Reveals a Lot About Elite Colleges, Professor Jessica Colarco, a professor of sociology at Indiana University, had a different take and joins me now. Professor Calarco, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. So before you explain your view, let me first ask, were you surprised at w- what I saw as the overwhelming response being support for the professor and not for the students? Is, was that your read of the way people reacted to the story last week? I think there's been a very mixed response, which speaks to the way that this issue highlights the complicated role that higher education plays in society and the tremendous pressures that are both on professors to help educate the next generation of students and on students to try to use those degrees to get whatever leg up they can in a deeply unequal society. Is there anything new in in that struggle or in that conflict, if conflict is the right word? Has something changed in the last few years or is this a conversation we could have had 30 years ago? I mean, certainly there have been many students, uh, former students and current students who've reached out to me over this past week uh, who have highlighted the problems with higher education that have existed not just over the past few years, but over the past couple of decades. Um, Really, this kind of weed out mentality is not new. What does seem to be new is that students some students at least do seem to feel more entitled to speak up when they see problems uh, in the classroom or problems with the institutions uh, that they are part of. Isn't there, I I was a liberal arts major, government and journalism. Isn't there something to be said for a weed out mentality, maybe not in your field of sociology or mine in government or journalism, but when it comes to the practice of medicine, you know, you really do want to make sure that someone has the core skill set before 
others place their lives in your hands. I mean, we also have to consider what we lose as a society when people who could be excellent doctors are being forced to abandon that goal because of one course that they take in undergrad. Research shows, for example, that students' performance in organic chemistry isn't actually a very good predictor of what kind of doctor they'll be. And meanwhile, our existing supply of doctors isn't working very well for many patients. The U.S. has lower life expectancy than most other high-income countries. And we know that some of our most medically vulnerable patients have worse health outcomes when they're treated by physicians whose backgrounds are different from their own. And yet we have this huge shortage of Black and Latino doctors, doctors from low-income communities, and a shortage of women doctors in subfields like surgery. And so we can't just ask, what are the risks to patients if doctors aren't expected to get good grades in an undergraduate-level organic chemistry class? We also have to ask, what are the risks to patients and to society if those requirements are pushing out future doctors who would be the most effective in treating patients, and especially patients in more medically vulnerable groups? Isn't that more a message for medical schools than it is for undergraduate institutions? I mean, that should be a wake-up call for med schools. Hey, perhaps we should not have a prerequisite of organic chemistry. And if that were the case, then students wouldn't take it, and we wouldn't be talking about Professor Maitland Jones, Jr., Exactly. And that's why I argued in the the New York Times piece that the goal here is not or that the solution here is not to punish professors because they're doing what the system is telling them to do in the sense that these requirements, these types of weed out um, courses are often designed to fulfill requirements that students need to complete in order to go to medical school because that's what the medical school is expecting. And so really, we need to rethink the sorts of gatekeeping that happens all along the way and change the systems, not just punish the individuals who are part of it. Here's what I highlighted in the piece that you published in the New York Times. You said, imagine, for example, a student whose high school offered no advanced chemistry classes, who is the first in her family to go to college, and who, in addition to her studies, has to work 20 hours a week to pay bills. Imagine also that this student doesn't have a reliable laptop or Wi-Fi at her apartment, so she has to do her work in a computer lab or on her phone. Now compare her to classmates who took multiple AP science classes, who has no financial obligation and who has all the learning tools he needs. They may sit right next to each other in that orgo class, but their backgrounds place them miles apart. I'm not so sure that I want the the former to be the one who's performing my brain surgery. I mean, I think really we have to think here about does do the context that students are facing while they are in undergrad, do they have lasting consequences for students in terms of their ability to perform these kinds of roles? And if that's the, the case, if you're concerned about those kinds of students being able to perform brain surgery, for example, why not change the system in ways that ensures that those students aren't facing those challenges? Certainly, okay, I that, think we can take yeah. steps to make classes more equitable, but we can also take lots of steps to make sure that students are getting the support that they need to be successful in their classes in the short term. Right. And I share your objective of wanting to level the playing surface for those two worlds that you've just described in your your essay. But in the meantime, if I'm being honest, uh, I want to make sure that the person who is going to tend to my health and well-being is at the top of their game intellectually as proven academically, because I don't know how else I can get that assurance. Yeah, and I guess that's where I would turn back to the research that shows that these grades and classes like organic chemistry don't seem to really predict who the best doctors are. And we also have so many other 
uh, hurdles that students have to clear in order to become doctors. They have the NCATs, they have their, their medical school grades, they have their USMLEs, their licensing exams. And so I think really, for in my view, it's about sort of do we really need that first hurdle that pushes so many students out of the medical profession um, when we have all of these other checks in place to make sure that the students who are making it through to the end and actually becoming doctors are the ones who are uh, able to do that work. But Professor Colarco, couldn't the same argument be made about the MCATs? Because I've had many, many conversations here over the years about standardized tests. By the way, I, I myself uh, am an antagonist of standardized tests, probably because I performed so poorly on them back in the day in my own case. But when you portray those those two different scenarios, you know, the student whose high school offers no advanced chemistry classes, first in her family to go to college, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that is the student who's not taking advantage of a paid-for prep course, the sort that the kids in my neighborhood are all taking. Like, they all take them yeah. to try and, and come out on top of SATs or later in life, LSATs or, or MCATs. So you, you, your argument, I think, could be advanced to get rid of MCATs and LSATs as well, and GREs. I mean, I think... Yeah, in the context of inequalities, and, and especially the kinds of deep inequalities we have in the U.S. today, high-stakes tests can't actually measure merit. They can't measure, they can't accurately measure students' knowledge or aptitude or effort. If some students are coming to that test with their needs met and with limited stress and with more limited access to things like those test prep programs, while other students are, or, or, or with lots of access to those test prep programs, while other students are coming to class hungry or worried about whether they'll be able to pay the rent next week or whether they'll be able to catch the bus after the test to get to their job. I mean, those kinds of unequal stresses are a big part of why students not only um, perform unequally in classes where there's tests all the time, but also on these bigger high stakes tests, things like the MCATs, things like the GREs and the SATs. And they're part of why we often treat these kinds of tests as meritocratic and we use them in ways that then justify and tend to reify the perception that students from more privileged backgrounds are more deserving of these kinds of elite opportunities in society, uh, when in fact, really, they're just measuring students' privilege, at least with the primary bulk of those, um, are, are those, those tests seem to be measuring privilege. Professor Calarco, how about this? When I, uh, when I did this segment on television on Saturday, I received a communication. I don't know if it was a text or an email or a tweet, but from my torts professor in law school, who is a law professor at Rutgers uh, through this day. Amazing, because the guy doesn't age. And he said to me, the students have changed since your era, and my era was 30 years ago. He said they now look at education as a commodity. And by that, I think he meant they believe, hey, we're paying for it, therefore we are entitled to receive completion, regardless of how we perform. Have you noticed a change like that in students? I mean, I think really what's changed is that our society has become more deeply unequal and that today, given the inequalities that we have between not only the, the rich and the poor, but between the rich and the middle class, students are told from an early age, your only chance at success and stability and economic security is if you find not only just a stable middle-class job, but essentially an elite job, an elite profession. And so students are told from these early ages, you have to go get a STEM degree, you have to go get a law degree, you have to go get a med school degree. And that kind of pressure, it comes from the increasing inequality that we've seen over the last 30 years in U.S. society. And it puts tremendous pressure on students to pursue not only elite degrees, 
degrees from elite institutions, but also the elite of the elite opportunities within those schools as well. And so really, I think it's not a function of students becoming more entitled, but of a more unequal society that is increasing the stakes uh, that, that are attached to the kinds of de- degrees and the kinds of schools that students might pursue. Okay, a final question, and thank you for being so gracious with your time. So the original New York Times story that I'm sure, obviously, you read, you responded to it in the Times, uh, had thousands of comments appended to it. And the most recommended of those comments was a short one that I'm going to read aloud and read to you. Uh, Jay Fogarty says, one of the students complained that the grades did not reflect the time and effort they put in. That perspective misses the point. In life, you are graded for results rather than effort. The students better understand that pretty soon. Your thought? I mean, I think there's a very... One of the problems with the way that courses are sometimes taught in college is that they are graded on a curve, for example, uh, where students' grades are dependent on what other students do in the class. And so if too many students score too highly, with big air quotes around that, then that can push down the grades of other students. And so I think there's, there, there's some questions around whether the kinds of teaching that are happening in classes, the kinds of assessments that are happening in college classes, are really the most equitable or the most effective. There, there's good research out there showing that there are steps that college professors can take to make their courses more effective, including STEM courses. And I have many colleagues who are doing excellent work in helping their students to actually learn and to have their performance match the effort uh, that they're putting into those kinds of classes. One of the problems, I would argue, is that many uh, people who pursue PhDs to become professors receive zero training in pedagogy. It's often not required with graduate-level PhD programs focusing instead on how to be good researchers and not on how to be good teachers. And so there's also very little incentive for faculty members to continue to stay up on their training on effective pedagogy and how to be more effective in the classroom and more equitable as well as our student composition changes. And so I think that's one of the key problems is that there are more effective tools out there and students are now becoming more aware of that because some professors are taking advantage of those opportunities to learn and improve their pedagogy uh, while others aren't. And so when students see those inequalities in the way that teachers are teaching in some classes versus others, they become more frustrated with the classes that they experience where they they don't receive that kind of support. Jessica Calarco is the author of two books on social class and inequalities in schooling, Negotiating Opportunities, How the Middle Class Secures Advantages in School, and A Field Guide to Grad School, Uncovering the Hidden Curriculum. Thank you so much for your willingness to discuss your essay and your work and expertise. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. Thank you. So do I need to say anything further? Are, are we not teed up for a great conversation about this. Uh, what of her argument when she says, hey, you know, it's it's not fair to the student whose high school didn't have advanced chemistry, who's the first in her family to go to college, who, in addition to her studies, has to work 20 hours to pay bills. Imagine also that she doesn't even have a reliable laptop or Wi-Fi. And now she's in organic chemistry sitting next to a classmate who took multiple AP science courses, who had no financial obligations, who has all the learning tools he needs. They're sitting right next to each other in that orgo class, but their backgrounds place them miles apart. Okay, that's a really important point, and I wish there were more parity for those two students. But let me ask you something. Which one do you want as your oncologist? Which one do you want as your your brain surgeon? Which one do you want as your internist? I'll say that, 
on CNN last Saturday, uh, we worked hard to craft a poll question on this. Would your choice of physician be impacted if you knew they struggled with undergraduate organic chemistry? 26,854 votes were cast. It was 60-40 no. I was in the yes category. I mean, frankly, it would depend which type of physician. If I'm having an invasive surgery, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the sheepskin on the wall. Yes, I am. But I was in the minority on that. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. This is Spencer in San Diego. Thank you, uh, Spencer. What did you want to say? Good morning, Michael. So um, I I have a real problem with what your guest said because I went to undergrad liberal arts college like you did. I was in honors. Then I went to law school, and it was it's a whole different ball game, right? Right. And so uh, I'm I'm concerned that if we keep moving the goalposts, if 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 basically what I heard her theory was, as long as you get the students in law school or in med school that they could perform well. And I just, I don't see that as the case. Law school was a mental marathon that despite the prep courses I took, you know, I came from a middle-class upbringing. It did not prepare me for what I had to endure in law school. You basically have to learn how to go to law school and med school as you're going through school itself. And so her argument to me is, okay, so let's remove you know, the OCHEM class, the first gatekeeper. Well, then the MCAT and the LSAT, right. that's not a good judge right. of who's a good what, lawyer. Spencer, okay, well, then let's take away the, you know, Spencer, I, that are based on one I test, agree with you. you know? By the way, by the way, we, we have a 1L in our house right now. So everything you're saying is resonating with me. Uh, when I said to her, well, okay, 
maybe organic chemistry then if the med schools decide they're not going to require it. And she said, yeah, after all, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, there's the MCAT. And then you heard me say this same logic could be applied to the MCAT because the student that she's most concerned about, that we're all concerned about, is not going to have the resources to to take a prep course for MCATs or LSATs or GREs. So essentially, where does it end is what I was trying to say. And and I completely agree because, you know, now I help teach at a law school and if you students will not be prepared for what's expected of them. And when you're a doctor or a lawyer, you represent people's real real interests and the re- repercussions of mistakes you make for their lives if you are not prepared. It's right. something that law schools and med schools should vet out people who cannot achieve that level Got of it. trust. People Spencer, thanks. Thanks for that. Going to shift to L.A. now. This is Jerry. Greetings, Jerry, on the organic chemistry controversy. You wanted to say what? Well, thank you, Michael. I am a uh, high school AP chemistry teacher. I've been teaching Ah. AP chem for over 30 years. Wow. And I have to tell you that uh, AP itself has become, in the interest of being inclusive, far less of a rigorous class than it used to be. And one of the topics out of many that AP has eliminated in the interest of making the class more accessible is organic chemistry. And my students no longer receive any instruction in basic organic chemistry in AP Chem in high school. And I think that may be contributing to the fact that when they get to OCHEM in college, they find it overwhelming. And um, inclusion is wonderful, and I love the fact that my classes have increased in size from maybe one class of 17 students 20 years ago to two classes of 30 kids each now. But uh, it is a lot less of a rigorous class than it used to be. And how we fix that imbalance, I don't know. Boy, I'm so glad you're in your car right now driving to go teach uh, advanced yeah, chemistry. I just AP- All right. Well, I'll let you go. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, though. That was really insightful. I didn't know that it's actually backed up in terms of the education process. And it's now, you know, at the high school level. So, of course, you know, when these students generally when they get there, uh, they're behind the eight ball because they didn't have it in AP. And why didn't they have it in AP? Well, because somebody complained and said, well, it's really not fair. Where where will the end of grades be? Tom, you are in Rochester, New York. You wanted to say what? Hey, thanks for taking my call. So um, I'm a physician. I'm sitting here reviewing uh, residency applications right now for our program. And uh, I've got a couple of observations. Uh, First of all, these students coming in, even from when I applied, very impressive. Um, You know, they have a a robust background, and, um, you know, there's some hating on some of these students saying they're lazy or whatever. There's so many extracurriculars that go into these things now. It's it's crazy. Uh, You know, the other point is, you know, I know what you're saying about, you know, how someone does in an organic chemistry grade. You know, maybe you don't want them operating on their brain or not. There's a lot of people that fail organic chemistry are great surgeons, are great doctors. And it doesn't really matter. And if you were going to make a more equitable system, you would want to know where people are coming into the system and then how well they do. I mean, I want the person that's going to be able to learn the fastest, be able to adapt. You know, those are the people that we need in healthcare, and the system doesn't allow for it. And in the system, we are asking students to take out essentially a loan the size of a mortgage to complete their 
undergraduate degree, putting themselves into forever debt, where if they're not successful, you know, they're done. I mean, you're talking about two, three hundred thousand dollars worth of loans for undergraduate degrees. I get for it. People D- that maybe different, y- y- different you know, point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Different point, though, on on the issue that you raised. I'm sympathetic to the student who didn't have the advantage, but if they're not performing, I'm using organic chemistry as sort of a barometer of, of their performance generally. If they're, if they're generally not performing at the level of someone else, I'm sorry. When it comes to treating me, I want the superior academic performer. So what if it's their fourth time through? I mean, if it's their fourth time seeing their inf- that information, they should do better. They should do a lot better. But if it's their first time through and they start out poorly, but they learned it faster than the first person that did it, that just happens to be going through it for the fourth time, you think that's the right barometer? Let me ask you something. So for your residency, those applications that you're accepting, what kind of yeah. allowances are you making saying, well, this person may have had a rough go, so I'm going to cut them some slack in comparison to the others? Oh, yeah. So um, there's a lot of different things. So grades grades are part of it. We do a holistic review of the people's charts, right? Some people come here and they visit us for a month or so, and we get to see how they actually perform. You look at their letters of recommendations from a variety of other departments. So it doesn't just come down to grades. It's just how are you treating patients? These, these letters, they come through. It's, you know, they had great you know, personal contact with people. They were able to work with the team well. They write good notes. They have good medical intuition. There's certain things that a test can tell you about it. And then there's the day-to-day, you know, what, I get it. when you have a if, patient if I, in front of you, what's different? If I'm the guy, if I'm the one coming off as being like a hard liner for, for the standardized testing and numbers driven, I'd be arguing against my own interest because I was a poor performer on every one of those standardized tests. And it was a real struggle <laughs> for me initially. So someone no, took a no, someone it, took no. a, cha- a, a, um, a chance on me. I actually I know who it was. His name was Sam Missimer. He was the uh, dean of admissions at Lehigh University. Doc, I got to run, but thank you. And, and to Tom and Rochester's point, I want to say that I heard from Doctor Maz yesterday because he's heard me make reference to this, or maybe he saw me talk about it on CNN. So Doctor Maz, who is the co CEO of Cooper Medical, uh, Cooper University Healthcare. A massive healthcare operation sent to me a chart. What qualities do patients look for in a physician? 27% said trained in one of the best medical schools. 27%, 58% said lots of experience. When you then get into compassion as compared to training and experience, passion matters, compassion matters more. 81% willing to spend enough time with me. 83% takes my concerns seriously. 83% easy to talk to. 84% listens carefully. 85% treats me with dignity and respect. Interesting finding, right? Right in line with what we're talking about. This is the Smirconish Podcast from SiriusXM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. 
you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a like a good neighbor. Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Listen to Michael Live, weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. Jill says, I got it wrong, and Jill is in Scottsdale. Hi, Jill. Hi, Michael. So this is, you're seeing it through the wrong lens. So physicians and nurses, we take really high credit loads. We take high competency classes, okay, biochemistry, pharmacology. I guarantee you, if you ask any physician that's going to do your brain surgery, if he could show you organic chemistry, he'd have no clue. And I understand what you're saying about weeding out in those classes, but again, I want you to go back to one thing that your guest said that was really, really important, and that's pedagogy. None, not one professor, I guarantee you, has taken courses in how to teach. I was a clinical assistant professor for 19 years. I graduated as a nurse practitioner. I took no classes of how to <laughs> teach. But as I learned how to teach, my goal was to have the students learn. Not right. suffer, not struggle, but learn to impart the knowledge that I have as a nurse so that when they get to the bedside, they are the best they can be. And in reference to liberal arts, I'm sorry, if you take liberal arts and then go to law school, it's a completely different ballgame than taking pre-med or pre-nursing and then going to nursing school or medical school. And then well, the point I was, I, was, other- I, was try- I was trying to make the point about, about the LSATs and the GMATs and the GREs, the same argument. I know you have to run, but I'm very appreciative of your, your phone call. The, the same arguments can be made about those tests. Hey, they're not fair to those who didn't have resources. Marsha, in L.A., you most wanted to say what? I think it's more important to prepare the students at uh, for college than to give someone a degree. The degree is not a participation trophy. You have to earn it. So the teachers should invest their time at high school level, at middle school level, elementary level, preparing students to be college ready. Not once they get to college, they have to prove that they're able and up to the job. We don't okay, owe the lawyer. But you're you're in LA. You you heard you heard the AP Chem teacher who was sitting in her high school parking lot to talk to me, and she said she's removed organic chemistry from AP Chem because of the same type of pressures. Like, hey, you know, the kids are not going to do well in this. That's not I, I don't but think that's, that's a healthy trend. That's, that's the wrong move. I mean, you you teach the kids how to learn at that level. Once they get to college, they have to be ready to be able to perform when they get on the job, just like I had to. Sure. Just like I get you it. Had to. Marcia, thank you. Appreciate it. Gracie, Nashville, Tennessee. You most wanted to say what? 
I'm a student, so I'm a bit of a different different demographic than everybody else here. But what I will say is that the the different levels of teachers in high school versus college is astronomically different. I'm a first year, I'm a freshman in college right now, and all I'm going to say is the colleges professors in college don't really care whether or not you learn is my experience all they care about is that you're getting the information it's really up to you to learn and I don't know if that should be different or not I'm just saying in my experience right now in 2022 college professors don't really care whether or not you learn Mm, pretty broad statement I hope that's not accurate but I wish you good things in Phoenix this is Brett hi Brett Hi, Michael. Um, I just wanted to say, and I, I took Maitland Jones's organic chemistry class oh. 30 years ago. Oh, where uh, where, where did you have him? At Princeton University. Um, nice. And I would say he was an excellent lecturer. Uh, I enjoyed his class. Um, he was very dynamic. He was very engaging. Organic chemistry as a screening mechanism for medical school is I think part of the reason it came to the forefront is more of a problem-solving class or exercise. You know, you're, it's almost like solving puzzles. You're given a, a set of starting ingredients, and you have to explain in a series of steps how you get from point A to point B. How do you create this molecule from these other molecules as, as starting points? Uh, but as far as Maitland Jones is concerned, um, I, I thought he was excellent. Um, uh, the second point just would be— Wait, I have to—Brett, I have to ask. I have to ask. How would you do in the course? Well, I got an A in the class, but then again, I was a chemistry major, so I probably had an aptitude. I, there were plenty of classes I did not do well in at Princeton, but right, um, right. Uh, I, I was one of those. I was one of those, you know, kids you talked about. Who I went to a fancy boarding school. I had AP classes. I, I spent a summer at Cornell, so I, I had a lot of academic preparation. But uh, I, I enjoyed it. In in terms of medical school screening, though, I. I you know, there needs to be a minimum benchmark of academic performance or intellectual ability, certainly. Um, but I, I think, you know, I've got all this information from gross anatomy, for instance, that we had to memorize as medical students. that You can now get in 10 or 20 seconds with your cell phone. I, I mean, right. some of this stuff that we're yeah. required to just commit to rote memorization, you don't have to do that. I, I think they need to do a better job now, though, of including uh, to your point of one of your callers, uh, qualities like compassion, empathy, patience. Um, you know, I don't know if that's a, a psycho. No, there, there needs, there needs to be, there needs that. to be a course in bedside, bedside manner. I, I had, I, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you, thank you, Brett. Appreciated your insight, especially having had him as your professor. I, I had a situation, I had a situation yesterday where I have, I have a, an eye condition. I have an eye condition. I hadn't noticed. And and TC unfortunately has had to look across the studio <laughs> and, and look, I'm, you know, I'm like a pirate over here. <laughs> Arg. And I had an extraordinary experience yesterday. Oh, isn't that nice? From a healthcare provider who, who she was wonderful, took time with me, and, and was just yeah. great. And it was such a so good to hear such an unusual experience. And that shouldn't be unusual, right? Right. I mean that that's the way that's the way it ought to be. Yeah. The Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and 
starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a, like a good neighbor. Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.